CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Josh Marshall podcast. We have uh, a few things we're going to talk about today. In a way, it's almost, it's maybe kind of a slow news week. It's hard to know what, you know, it's sort of like theory of news relativity, what's fast and what's slow now, right? We're coming off a lot of news and there's actually still quite a, quite a lot of news, but a lot of it is stuff that, you know, was, was happening last week. We still have the ongoing drama of Kevin McCarthy. I actually just did a post uh, that went up, that I posted a little while ago, in which I said, you know, because I've been saying, like, ignore the drama. He's going to be speaker. This is just this kind of, like, weird choreographed nonsense that um, that Republicans do. But now I'm not totally so sure. I mean, it's still the weird choreographed nonsense that Republicans do. But I think what you may see happening is you do these little dramas and sometimes it gets away from you. Right. You, you know, you're kind of uh, you're out hot rodding with your high school friends one night and things get out of control and someone gets hurt. And maybe Kevin McCarthy's going to be the one who gets hurt here. You know, I really think that if if it ends up that McCarthy cannot get the votes and he loses this, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a brief burst of high fives from the Freedom Caucus guys. And then they're going to look at Kevin and say, are you, are you kidding, dude? What the fuck? Because what do we do now? We have no idea what to do. We, we, you know, how, did, how did you let this get so out of control? Because they have no, they have no, this, this is unlike a real leadership battle. They don't have another person who they're like, oh, we need the other person. We're done with Kevin McCarthy and all he represents. They don't have another person. And it's not even because, it's not even just because they want one of their own, you know, they want it to be Matt Gates or Andy Biggs or something like that, but those guys don't have the votes. There's a little bit of that, but th- that's so that's so absurd that that's not even. This is about you know they say uh, you know the, the the journey is the destination, right? What the Freedom Caucus is about is not passing some particular law. It is about these kinds of dramas. It is about you know. Uh, making a a John Boehner or a Paul Ryan just abase themselves and and get in these kind of absurd situations um because if if McCarthy doesn't get this and just in the last couple of days for the first time I'm kind of starting to wonder whether he might not be able to do it I mean first of all that will mean his career in politics is over 
His career in electoral politics is over. You don't stick around in the leadership if you've been passed over for speaker twice. Even McCarthy, even Kevin McCarthy is not that, un, you know, without any dignity at all. And uh, if history is any example, you, you resign from Congress. You're done. You don't have run the show for years and then you're kind of just like a backbencher kind of, you know, talking to constituents about the pothole on their street and stuff like that. That's not how it works. Um, but if he does go down, there's some talk about, I don't know, this McHenry guy, you know, kind of a few different random house people who kind of are just some dude who, uh, okay, maybe we can we can agree on that person. Or maybe Steve Scalise, who's the, uh, the whip, his, you know, his deputy. And he has been... Um, you know, at least in theory, kind of totally loyal to McCarthy, like, oh, that's not going to happen, blah, 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 blah. Um, I will say he could come out and say, if anybody thinks that Kevin McCarthy is not going to be speaker, I will tell you right now, I will not be speaker no matter what. That that would backstop this a little. He's not doing that. Um, but it's not like there, there, there's no one there's no one they want more than Kevin McCarthy. So this is all just... This is all just that kind of, um, you know, House Republican wingnut thing. And it will be the same thing that the whole country will go through when we have the debt ceiling hostage crisis um, in six months or whenever that is. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some other stuff, too. Um, but before we do, let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Budget resolutions, forget something like starting a daily Pilates habit or giving up Twitter. This year, set a resolution you can really stick to, slashing your monthly coffee budget. If you're ready to wean your wallet from $5 ice lattes, Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew can help. Each all-in-one cold brew kit makes 36 cups of coffee. That's enough to cover your daily latte habit, plus the occasional two-a-day for just $30 per month. And with the time you save waiting in line at the drive-thru, you can probably squeeze in a quick ab workout at home. Or not. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So co-host Kate Riga, what are we, what are we talking about? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, we had this whole kind of McCarthy corner last pod, but it does feel like there's been some real movement on that front. At least, you know, the situation we had last week was kind of there is a knot of people who are at least making noise about not supporting McCarthy. Um, pretty much all, you know, Freedom caucus types. And where we are now is that there seem to be about you know, four or five people who, upon being asked follow-up questions like, okay, does that mean you're going to vote present? Or are there concessions he could give that would sway you? Have said no, pretty definitively. Has said, I'm going to be a no vote or I'm going to vote for somebody else. So, you know, it's funny because I too have been operating with an the feeling that they're going to make this as, you know, hard and uncomfortable for McCarthy as possible. They're going to make him writhe and dance around as much as possible but then you know chips fall where they may and and he'll still kind of end up being speaker and now we're in a situation where he's saying to to reporters i'm not going to drop out you know i'm going to stay in the fight even if it takes multiple ballot rounds before we have a speaker yeah i mean it at at a certain level you know we, we don't 
we don't do in our politics anymore where like you know in the same way we don't at political conventions you don't have a you don't have a presidential convention and you're like well let's see what happens <laughs> let's start voting and kind of like see who comes out on top that's not that's not something we do anymore and we don't have this thing where you do multiple votes on on the on the floor for the speaker having said that not only at some level does mccarthy have to say like i'm not i'm not you know, I'm not making this easy. Like, if you really want to do this, I will kind of, you know, it'll be like Samson, right? It'll, we'll, I'll bring down the, bring down the building uh, with me. And, but, but at a certain level, he kind of has to do that because back in, when was, I don't know if it was 2015 when, mm-hmm. when Boehner left, um, you know, he was the heir apparent and then he just, he just uh, back, you know, he, he not resigned, but he withdrew his candidacy and Paul Ryan came in and, you know, he could kind of do that then because people were not expecting John Boehner to resign. That was a pretty big surprise. So it's so in that case, you could say, you know, it's a little embarrassing, but but just because your majority leader doesn't mean everybody wants you to be speaker and maybe it's too soon or something, you know, or something like that. Um, but now he is, he has, he has been waiting for, I guess what, four years. Wait, did Ryan, Ryan left after the 2018 election. So he's been in for four years and he, and he's just spent the last two years running for speaker. So like, you can't just say, okay, I guess it's a little premature. It's it's up or out now. Mm-hmm. And um, it would just be too pitiful to say like, oh, okay, sorry. I guess I guess I won't be speaker. I'm just going to, there's an opening for Margie Green's driver. I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't know what happens. But, um, uh, you know, I, I was I was writing about this in a, in a, in a, in a post I just did that, this is an example of why it's going to be hard for the GOP to wrest itself free from Donald Trump because, you know, the D.C. conventional wisdom is, okay, Trump was poisoned at the ballot box. We're going to have to move in a new direction, blah, 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 blah. Clearly, the House is not, the House GOP is not doing that. But what's interesting is that it is precisely the poor showing that Donald Trump limited them to which is the source of his own strength now now it's not just his strength it's the strength of his people right um but still kind of the same thing if 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 they had really you know kind of rolled the table ran the table and um had a 40 seat majority this wouldn't be an issue this would not be an issue um because then sure you might you have 10 people who say they're never going to vote for him but i guarantee you that as much as there are a lot of Republicans who are into this nonsense, certainly the big majority, whatever they think of Kevin McCarthy, are sort of like, let's not do this. You know, we have a majority. We need to we need to try to build on it. Let's you know, Kevin's fine. Let's just let's just move ahead. Um, so just because you need to move in a new direction, just because you decide you need to move in a new direction, doesn't mean you can move in a new direction. And this is sort of like an example of that. I think it's also just from the perspective of like, you know, Republicans finally flipped a chamber right after two years of Democratic tyranny and 
obviously that has been dented from the beginning because they're only going to have like a four seat majority when people were kind of rubbing their hands together for a 50 seat majority not that long ago. But God, it really is just kind of an indication of where we're going, that the first thing this new Republican House is going to do is have some dramatic, potentially calamitous speaker showdown, you know, on the on the House floor that unless they can get their house in order in the next few weeks looks kind of unavoidable. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I have uh, a friend of mine who who's involved in Republican politics and, and we've been sort of kind of he and I have been gaming this out and let, let's set aside whatever happens with the with the speaker, right? The speakership. You're going to have a number of of votes over the next two years that, you know, things like the debt ceiling, things like, you know, uh, one, the first of the 10 government shutdowns we'll have over the next two years, um, conceivably some votes on things like abortion, uh, all these different kind of things. You have at least, you have 10 or a dozen, at least, um, new representatives who are in really blue districts. You know, like districts that Donald Trump, I'm sorry, Joe Biden won by like 10 points or so. Uh, You know, that district, those those a bunch of districts in New York State, um, uh, a few districts in Florida, a bunch of districts in California. And as much as Florida as a state is definitely, you know, kind of zooming in the Trump direct Trump Republican direction, a number of those, at least a couple of the House seats that they picked up there are still pretty close calls. So you're going to have you're going to have these votes. And, you know, so so those say dozen people, it doesn't doesn't rep, certainly six or seven. They're kind of like dead men walking politically. Right. It is going to be very hard to hold on to those um, seats in 2024, almost regardless of the outcome of the election, even if the Democratic candidate for president loses, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to do. So are those, do those people want to be kind of, you know, uh, you know, going full QAnon, what we used to call, you know, full tea party on like, you know, kind of driving the country into, into debt default. Now my, my friend says, you know, no way they're going to say like, no, I'm not gonna, why am I going to walk that plank? Um, I'm going, you know, my only, uh, my only, path to political survival is, you know, I'm a different kind of Republican. I'm a Republican, but I don't play along with, with, with the nonsense. I'm a kind of a stabilizing force, blah, 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 blah. Um, and at a certain level, it's hard for me to disagree with this guy about that. Cause of course, they, I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, it is, they, they sort of have no business holding those seats in New York state. And I don't mean that in a sense of like justice, but I mean, they're, those are democratic districts. Um, when you have a, uh, you know, a partisan presidential election. Um, and yet if the first thing, if the first thing this new house does is basically say, okay, I'm signing over power of attorney over our majority to Matt Gates <laughs> or Andy Biggs or whatever. How does that, you know, how does that hold up? I mean, they're not, they're not precisely the same questions because it's sort of a matter of who's withholding their votes, right? Um, 
but it's kind of the same thing. You get a sense early of who's calling the shots here. And I think we, for the moment, we see who's calling the shots here. The other thing that's going to just hound, uh, you know, a Speaker McCarthy or whoever it is, is that McCarthy has been railing against the use of proxy voting ever since the pandemic started, the way that members can vote from afar, don't have to be on the floor, something that for a long time was pretty strict. And then during the pandemic, it's one of those things where you introduce kind of a the equivalent of like a work from home thing. And then everybody realizes like, wow, that's really convenient. And turns out I don't actually need to be there in person to like thumb up, thumb down. Right. Um, but that was like a McCarthy hobby horse for the past two years, sending out press releases every time that Nancy Pelosi like extended the proxy voting period. And it's like, fine, you're going to get a chance to end it. And then that means that you have to make sure that with your piddling four seat majority you've got all your boys on the floor to vote because if people don't come you're gonna start losing votes just because of the numbers game you know and you're gonna have people traveling and all kinds of things and that's you know we're not even getting into right now the statistical reality that like a handful of members you know dies gets arrested or resigns every term so i mean there's just so many factors and i think in retrospect we are going to be blown back by the power and control of Nancy Pelosi, who steered an, you know, an almost equally tiny majority with almost no hiccups. I think it's exactly, isn't, don't, don't they have 2022? I mean, if you, if yeah, you, if you I take think, out people, obviously a few people have passed away, right. but if, if kind of where they got at the, be- at, at the beginning, I think it's identical. Mm-hmm. I think it's identical. No, I mean, this, this is kind of what I, I, I don't know if it was last week's part of the one before that. Um, that's the thing I was trying to convey to people. I mean, I know that, you know, a lot of Democrats really like Nancy Pelosi, but it is hard to quite do justice to just how good a legislative leader she is. To your point, that keeping a caucus that has, I mean, I guess it went down to two or three with like some resignations mm-hmm. and people people dying. I saw one statistic, I think I have this right, that um, seven of the people who were elected in 2018 to the House have died. Wow. Since then, including this, uh, uh, the the Democratic rep from, um, from Virginia who just passed away yesterday or, mm-hmm. the, or the day before that. So that happens. Um, and it is really hard. And yes, you know, you had that stuff with, uh, what is it, the guy in North Jersey whose name is escaping me right now on, on um, you know, Build Back Better and all this kind of stuff. Oh, Gottheimer. Yeah, Gottheimer. But basically, she has, it hasn't been an issue. Mm-hmm. She's powered it through. And yes, there's some jockeying here and there. Um, but everyone knows who kind of calls the shot. And, and, and you know, it's fun. It, it's some of that is that the Democratic Party is not the Republican Party. But it's hardly like you don't have any factionalism within the Democratic Party. I mean, good Lord, you have you have a ton, a ton of it. Uh, it's just an example that she is just a master. I mean, even... I think she came in, I think she became leader after, wait, I think after the 2002 election, um, I can't remember if it was, you know, 2001 or 2002, around then, she's been the leader of the caucus for 20 years. That's unheard of, unheard of in in modern history. You have to go way, way back. I'm not even sure, um, I'm not even sure 
you know, you talk about like, you know, Sam Rayburn, all these different, you mm-hmm. know, kind of guys from, you know, the, the, you know, the mists of history. I'm not even sure they were in for that long. It's just, she is a truly, whatever you think of her precise politics, you know, what her accomplishments are, she is a historic figure in that, in that role. And Kevin McCarthy's just kind of a chump. <laughs> There's not a lot of comparison. There's not yeah. a lot of comparison. So you mentioned this, but let's dig a little deeper into the debt ceiling stuff, which is going to be kind of the defining issue uh, in Congress for a while. And of course, we don't exactly know when the ceiling will hit. Estimates are 2023. I saw some April-ish times. People seem to think it's going to be earlier in the year than later. Um And we've been talking about this and reporting it on the website for a long time, which is it was kind of baffling that pre-election when things were tight and uh, people were in their kind of cautious end of the campaign mode, Republicans were just openly talking to reporters about the fact that they plan to hold the debt ceiling hostage to extract cuts to Medicare and Social Security, you know, a staggeringly unpopular bundle of policies. But I guess since they were talking about it then, we shouldn't be over surprised that now they're kind of doubling down. And this came in the form of a John Thune, who's the number two Republican in leadership in the Senate. He gave an interview to Bloomberg where he just kind of doubled down on that. He said, uh, you know, he specifically mentioned he wants to look at raising the retirement age for Social Security, but suggested uh, an inclination to do kind of across the board um, cuts or changes. Um he had one line that I thought was really telling where he said, you know, of course, you know, no one's going to blow up the, the or no one's going to make us default, blah, blah, blah. But it's hard to say there's not an opportunity here when like one side is so pushed into action, which is like, it's just so funny how Republicans have really reached the point of being like, well, this is on the Democrats, even though, you know, they're the ones obviously creating the chaos. Yeah. But the other thing that bo- really bothered me about this Bloomberg article And some of the like coverage of this is they're describing it like Republicans are going to use the debt ceiling as a vehicle to cut Medicare and Social Security. And it's just like baffling to me because I think it also drives against news incentives to kind of like cloak this threat in a Byzantine kind of procedural talk. I mean, a a vehicle. Well, it's almost like 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 reconciliation is a vehicle. Yeah, it is a it literally it well literally in in the way that in parliamentary speak it is a a kind of a feature that you can use to do certain things. This isn't a vehicle. It's it really is hostage taking. Yeah, we'll default on the debt if you don't do this. Well, and using it like or, or Republicans want to tie entitlement reform to the debt ceiling. It's just kind of like that is doing such not only such a disservice to readers by kind of pretending that you would read that headline. And if you don't really know what the debt ceiling is or kind of like, OK, shrug, right, like a, a policy thing. But also I just think it drives against all the news incentives. Like blowing up the debt ceiling is exciting and dramatic and scary. You would think that like at the very least from a cynical kind of corporate journalism aspect, you would want to or kind of like page views. Yeah. yeah to go all yeah, in on yeah, it. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it, it has been, it has been perversely normalized mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of, difficult to ex- to quite explain or understand reasons why that is the case but it has and um i mean the one thing i'm wondering about and 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 some of this is i have to kind of get a refresher course in exactly what the house rules are and stuff like this 
let alone the realities of the politics of the House. But and this comes up potentially in a number of different things in this in this new Congress. There's something called a discharge petition. And there's a bunch of technical stuff involved. But basically what it is, is that you can get one of it. it I think it I, I think technically it has to do with moving a proposed piece of legislation out of committee and onto the floor. But in practice, what it means is if you can get a majority of the members to sign a document, this petition, you can on that one issue take back control of the calendar. So, for instance, let's say uh, Democrats want to hold a vote on X. Now, we know this is what being in the leadership does. You decide what gets a vote. You know, is a, is a certain vote not comfortable? Well, you just don't bring up that vote. But with a discharge petition, you can do that. You can say, okay, this vote on X, we are going to bring it up. Now, why doesn't that happen all the time then? Well, generally speaking, because... Signing a discharge petition is, it's almost an unforgivable thing vis-a-vis your party's leadership if you're, if you're in the majority. Because, you know, you can disagree on stuff, you can do everything. But in, in the same way that in theory, even if you don't like Kevin McCarthy, he won the caucus election, so you vote for him for speaker. But you can do this. And occasionally it happens. It happens maybe once a Congress or once every few Congresses or something like that. So in theory, and again, I need to go back and kind of refresh my memory on exactly what the details are. In theory, you could have a, a debt limit, you know, resolution bill. The Democrats put it, you know, kind of circulate it and then go to those vulnerable Republicans and say, hey, you could avoid the country going into default if you sign this. What do you think? And that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole thing. And I do think that, um, well, it would be different if, you know, we we don't know exactly how things are going to shake out in the Senate, but shouldn't Democrats start a discharge petition um, and to vote on a robe, you know, on a, on a row bill? Why not? I mean, you, you you have that question of what's going on in, in the Senate. Uh, I'm hoping, I think most people presume it's more likely than not, that um, the Democrats will have a 51-seat uh, majority, which means they have, they just need one of the kind of the, you know, the, the evil filibuster twins to, to, you know, get religion on the filibuster to have a vote on a row law. Now, Joe Manchin's not going to do that, but it has occurred to me, I mean, if the Democrats had held the House... I thought there was at least a decent chance that, I mean, Kirsten Cinema, she's unelectable now. She really is. She's unelectable. I'm not sure she quite realizes that yet, but I don't think she can even uh, get the nomination in Arizona. And if she does, I think she's unelectable. However, if she could go to voters and say, you know, oh, you didn't like me, but I let us vote for a row law. And now abortion is legal in every state in the country. That would heal a lot of wounds for Democratic partisans. That is like the one thing that would do it. Um, so there's lots of things that could happen over the over the course of the next two years that this could come into play. I, in, you know, in practice, it's kind of like you don't you don't um, you don't undermine your own caucus that way. But look, you know, Republicans roll kind of different, right? So. Yeah. Who knows? 
And part of the reason why it's important to kind of think of these like crafty workarounds in terms of the debt ceiling is that it's just seeming less and less likely that Democrats are just going to deal with this by themselves before the end of lame duck, um, which is something we've discussed. You know, you, you hike it so high in reconciliation, we just stop bumping up against it. And, and that's that. And they can do that by themselves without Republican support. But there was a, a big White House meeting with, you know, Pelosi, McCarthy, Schumer, McConnell on Tuesday. Pelosi came out and told reporters that they didn't discuss the debt ceiling during that conversation. It just seems like there's not a lot of energy around it kind of compared to the other stuff that's on the lame duck calendar. And like emotionally, I do get it. I, I get this, this idea that Republicans are basically like, or that Democrats are being charged with like babysitting for self-destructive Republicans who are insisting on like waddling into traffic. But it's just, you know, we've been through this and you don't have to get into it again, but just the stakes are so high that like as annoying as it is and as true that it must be incredibly tiring to be the only responsible party. It's just... It's not something we want to mess around with. Yeah, no, and it it's you know, you would need you would need cinema and mansion to go along with it. And mm-hmm. you have I'm sh- you know, you have uh you know, we had we had that event a couple months ago or oh god, I guess it's only it seems like a couple months ago. It's only, I think, like five weeks ago um, where we where we uh, talked about this. And um, Adam, Adam Jenelson basically said, you know, you've got you've, you've got a couple issues. One is, you know, no senator wants to be the one kind of like, oh, I, I don't want to I don't want to do it. Can you do it? Can mm-hmm. you do it? You know, that sense of like, it's not a crisis yet. I don't want to deal with the crisis. It's not a crisis. You know, I don't know what to say about that. Um and the other thing is, is you have certainly like a mansion, but maybe like a Mark Warner. They're like, oh, well, it's it's very bad, but we can we can use this as a way to finally deal with entitlements, quote unquote, which, you, you know, I mean, there are you can, um, you know, whatever you think about entitlements. I mean, that's sort of, sort of like, you know, kind of like. Um, you know, I'm not for bank robberies, but as long as we have this standoff, this is a time we can think about the distribution of money in the bank. I mean, it's just you don't people don't absorb what this means. You when you legislate, you legislate of kind of like, what can you agree to? What can you agree to? This is basically saying if you don't agree to what I want, I will do something so terrible that you think you have to just surrender because you cannot let something happen as terrible to the country as I'm just going to do. That's hostage taking. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like doing something like that should mean you are just written out of acceptable political anything. And it's one thing that most Republicans are like, yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah, that works for me. But that you have some other people who are sort of like, well, it's bad, but kind of, you know, we got to live in the, you know, got to politics, the art of the possible. I mean, this was one of, this was one of uh, Barack Obama's greatest failures as president. And one that he later recognized was a failure when this came up in uh, 2011, that they went into it not like this is fucking unacceptable you can never do this they said well we're going to we're going to have a negotiation see if we can come to sort of a global agreement they validated it um and you can say well what were they going to do you know what was their choice well <laughs> they did have choices and and again this isn't me 
you know, if if Barack Obama were on this episode, he would he would agree. We didn't, you know, we didn't we didn't think that through. We didn't we weren't thinking in the right terms. And Barack, you know, if you're listening, you, you, a standing invitation, you can always come on. Our, you can always come in our podcast. We'll even break the normal format to kind of do a little interview just for you. That's totally true. And also, I think the Obama administration, you know, naively, but thought that Republicans were actually interested in like, not just kind of the idea of exacting concessions, but of the policy side of exacting kind of specific policy wins that they wanted. And that has not even been true in these like in the subsequent debt ceiling standoff to that first one. It was just we want you to unravel the Affordable Care Act, basically. And every time this comes up, it's always, oh, we need to curtail government spending. But like, honestly, it even rarely gets beyond that level of generality. It's just this way that Republicans can call themselves fiscally responsible while they threaten to let the United States default. And part of the reason they keep doing it is because the biggest swath of like the Beltway press will let them do that and will let them call themselves fiscally responsible and then will frame the situation as you know republicans are just kind of playing hardball for policy changes yeah no it's kind of what we said at the beginning you know for 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 house republicans it's it's not the destination it's the journey yeah right i mean it's it's (laughs) not it's not really about having a this is what they do it's not kind of like we're going to use the we're going to use the debt ceiling to get that thing that we say is absolutely important it's just we're going to do a debt ceiling hostage taking because how else can you how else can you be more badass I mean even force a big crisis in this specific situation that Thune interview he mentioned like I said raising the retirement age for social security but then the only other kind of actionable thing that he said they wanted to hold the debt ceiling hostage for was perhaps to like take up Mitt Romney on his idea of making a commission to explore like how to reform these programs I mean are you that that's your big concession that you're willing to torch the global economy for like a blue ribbon commission yeah and and it's it well it it also shows that at least in theory this is not something that's coming from the senate side I mean it can't come from the Senate side. Mm-hmm. They're not in the majority. So, but, but the way that they are, you know, every, it's, it's like I said, kind of like, all right, police are outside. Um, the bank robbers have their gun to the, to the bank president's head. Not a great situation, but maybe some good can come out of this. We can talk through some redistribution of wealth. I mean, what right. the fuck? And the right? bank robbers a couple years before had had unified control and decided to do nothing about the redistribution of wealth at that time. But now all of a sudden we have to like pretend to credibly think that they're just earnestly motivated in these policy changes. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's interesting ridiculous. to go, if you go back, um, going on 30 years now in 1995, when in 1995 is when this version of Republican rule started. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually had been, uh, th- I mean, amazingly from the perspective of today, uh, but when when Republicans won the House majority in 1994, it was like the first time in like 40 years. I mean, it was, or maybe even 42 or, uh, I can't remember exactly. It was over 40 years since uh, Republicans had been in the majority in the House. And even then, they had only been in the majority for one or two terms. I can't remember remember exactly. Um, but in any case, the first run at this was the government shutdowns. That's when that started. And that seemed like a kind of thermonuclear thing. Like, 
what? Like the government is like, it's actually shutting down and you're and and it's funny that in later years, Republicans would always try to say, oh, we're not, we're not shutting, you're not shutting the government mm-hmm. down. We're not doing it. What are you talking about? When it started, Gingrich was, was before they realized it was a pretty big loser politically for them. He was like, I'm shutting it down. You know, we don't need government that much in the first place. And why am I shutting it down? Because Bill Clinton will crumple and fold because I'm the alpha here, Newt Gingrich. And what happened is, I mean, it actually happened twice, but the upshot was basically the Clinton White House said, "Uh, okay, let's see how this goes. Let's see how people like having the government shut down for no reason because you guys are complete fuckwads. <laughs> and actually, it was very damaging for the Republicans. And that was, uh, you know, one of the reasons that that uh, Bill Clinton had this kind of resurgence and ended up kind of cruising to reelection in 1996. And so the Republicans both in later government shutdowns, since it's like a common occurrence now, uh, in later government shutdowns, move to this thing of like, you know, we're not, we're not shutting it down. You're shutting it down. But also they realized it wasn't enough because, you know, all the non-essential people get, get furloughed and it causes a lot of pain to, uh, you know, a lot of quote unquote non-essential government workers and people, you know, all sorts of inconveniences, but kind of life goes on and it's not a big enough cudgel. And that's where the debt ceiling thing comes in because they realized that's a big cudgel. That is a really fucking big cudgel. And it really is something no one can allow to happen. So it's just, you know, it's 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 um, like a lot of abusers. You just move on to to you keep escalating. Mm-hmm. So the other thing we wanted to talk about is that Trump had dinner at Mar-a-Lago with formerly Kanye West. I guess now he's just ye yay. I guess I thought it was ye, then it was yay. I kind of am against the whole, the whole, he's such a a bad person. Why do we even have to go to the whatever (laughs) of doing this kind of name nonsense? But whatever, continue. Okay, so that was the planned dinner between these two. And our listeners, I'm sure, are aware now that Kanye West has done his thing that he does every once in a while where he seems to feel that he's, you know, not getting enough attention or is having some kind of a a manic phase, whatever it may be, but where he has just kind of gone full anti-Semite. That is his claim to fame. And accordingly with today's media ecosystem, when you go full anti-Semite, particularly if you're already a famous black man, that throws you into the arms of you know, the, the right wing media media ecosystem, which is populated by people who already have these views and who kind of love to have especially a, a minority voice for these views. So anyway, they show up and they come with Nick Fuentes, who is this like 24 year old white supremacist, Christian nationalist, Holocaust denier, has been kicked off basically every social media platform you can imagine. Um, Type guy, And they had specifically booked or Trump had specifically wanted to eat at a patio table that would be in real full sight of all the Mar-a-Lago guests. 
to kind of impress them, I guess, with his with his elbow rubbing. So everyone kind of saw it and, it and it came out right away, basically, that, that Trump had sat down to eat with this white supremacist. And then Trump did a series of, I honestly think disavowals is too strong, a series of statements where he said, I didn't know he was coming. I don't know who he is. I... You know, I wouldn't have accepted if I had known that was the that was the strongest it got. But really, the thrust of it was like, well, I didn't see this coming. I was hoodwinked, you know, Um, Yeah, it's everything. But it's it's he has kept it in the place where the substantial portion of his base of supporters who like this stuff can say, yeah, he had to kind of Mm -hmm. kind of wave it off. But he's you know, he's 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 making clear he's with us here. That he's not going to, you know, we know what he would say if he's really, if you meant it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was funny because there was this like NBC report that was kind of inside the dinner. And I, it made me laugh because what really seemed that what Trump did not like about this dinner was not that he was, you know, thrust into the airspace of like a virulent white uh, nationalist. It was that I guess Kanye was saying that he was going to run 2024 and Trump should be his running mate, which I don't think Trump liked very much. And then you had Fuentes kind of being like, uh, you know, you're at risk of becoming an institutionalist in 2024. You're not the renegade we once liked. So it really seems like Trump's anger from this meal is that they weren't very nice to him, not that he was kind of thrust into this situation unawares. Well, I think also in this, I mean, yes, that happened. But at a basic sense, Trump's the guy who kind of shows up and like scrambles your Mm -hmm. party. Trump's the guy who kind of upends the tables. And here it is. He's Trump's trying to get his footing because he's got the legal problems. He's got the midterm and he's got Kanye's going to come. And Kanye, you know, in the Trump mental ecosystem saying, hey, be my vice president. <laughs> you know, his whole world is kind of disses like that. So that's not great. And they got Fuentes there, who's there kind of like, I love you, but I loved you when you weren't total a total beta. You know, kind of, again, sort of like dinging him. And also kind of like, even though he won't, you know, denounce, still, they caused a problem for Trump. So really, they upended his table. So they pulled a Trump on him. So the whole thing is sort of like just at various levels. I mean, yes, to normal people, it's kind of like, wow, we we wouldn't really want the head of one of the two major political parties um, having a kind of like a little stormfront hoedown, <laughs> right, with these kind of like like Nazis. But for Trump, it was sort of like, man, you kind of humiliated me here. Right. And that's and that is not what that's not what Trump wants when he's trying to, you know, when he's trying to regain his, um, you know, his footing. And the other thing about that, too, I think everything you just said is right. And it's on his home turf and where all the people who came to kiss the ring are like sitting around and watching. So it really is a perfect storm of humiliation. And that's that. It's funny. Even even I'm not sure I quite. I'm not sure this quite crystallized for me until our conversation right here, that everybody in the sort of above the fold news world, the thing is that Trump did something outrageous. And that's, again, put his sort of uh, legitimacy and leadership in the Republican Party and American politics in question coming off the midterm, blah, 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 blah. But the bigger thing is they came in and punked him punked him on his own ground and it really 
And that, in many ways, is more devastating for Trump, for who he is, than, oh, he's an anti I mean, of course he is. Right. I mean, we've been doing this since, like, Charlottesville. I mean, we've been doing this since the middle of 2015. So, you know, none of, none of that is new. But again, he looks like an old guy at his villa who a couple young dudes came in and just, just kind of fucked him, right? And that's yeah. humiliating. It's funny because kind of the predictable next news cycle after this happened was, do will Republicans disavow this? And it's kind of, you have what has become almost a routine cycle here where you're going to have like Mitt Romney being like, yeah, that sucks, you know? And like this time we had Mike Pence saying he should apologize. And all these people who it has been become clear, like they are just not where the the crux of the Republican Party is. And, you know, there are people with limiting amounts of power, but nobody would say that Mitt Romney is currently the standard bearer for the Republican Party. So it's kind of like, okay, cool. The guys that we knew are, you know, relatively kind of like good people are against against this. Awesome. We already knew that, you know, and then you have a situation where and then you have the the McCarthy's trying to do this thing where they're like, I disavow anti-Semitism and, you know, by whatever, staying away from disavowing the specific dinner. But it's all just like, I, I think it's an important exercise because you can't just let this kind of thing happen and just be like, well, that's that. But what you say is true. It's just like, obviously, Trump is OK hanging out with white nationalists and anti-Semites. Like, of course he is. Right. That's just we've gotten to the point in the road where it's just so abundantly clear that he does not care. That is not a disqualifier. It's not even almost in the realm of things he cares about. Like his, the way that he kind of judges people is based on such a different paradigm that all has to do with like how willing to lick his boots they are that that yep. almost doesn't even like factor in. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an irrelevancy. And, and even, um, you know, the, be- <laughs> the best you can say for Donald Trump on the question of anti-Semitism. I mean, I think... Trump is an anti-Semite in the sense that he doesn't view Jews as full Americans. He wants to have them as the accountants, all that kind of stuff. But is he really like upset that they're around? No, not really. He doesn't care, right? He doesn't care about that. But it works for him politically. Exactly. And that's, and and so it's all, you know, it's not even like (laughs) he's so cynical that it's not even that his anti-Semitism is really that deep. Yeah. It's just work. It's just what works. It's it's just what works for um, what works for him. And uh, you know, in in well, you know, what what more can you say about it? I mean, I I I, I, w- I was going to say that you know there have been a little more kind of sort of criticisms, kind of denunciations, but what you have from once you get past like the Mitt Romneys, you have people saying, you know, like, yeah, I, you know, sure hope he doesn't have more of those dinners. That wasn't one of his best dinners. <laughs> you know, you have stuff like that. Where what you want to say is kind of like someone like this. I mean, in the old world, what you would have had is something like someone who acts like this cannot be a Republican, can't serve as any anything in the Republican Party. He needs to decide right now if... If this was a mistake, if this was a misunderstanding, he needs to make clear this will never happen again. And even then, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's that's when you know something has changed. But of course, there's I mean, even Mitt Romney hasn't quite said that because in a sense, 
Mitt Romney has no basis to say that. Mitt can say, oh, he's uh, he's degraded himself. He's degraded America. He's degraded blah, 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 blah. But since I don't really speak for anybody in the Republican Party, um, yeah, that's all I got. Because, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah. not in a, he's not in a position to say, like, oh, that will not stand in the Republican Party, of which I am, you know, already basically, like, ostracized from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so there all you right. go. So to wrap it up uh, with kind of a bit of good news, Yesterday, Tuesday, the Senate finished the passage of the same-sex marriage bill, which we talked about uh, last week, which does not go as far as Obergefell, but is just a really critical backstop. Should and the Obergefell. actual name is Respect for Marriage Act. That's right. Yep. And it, and and this repeals the the Defense of Marriage Act (DOMA), mm-hmm. which is the Clinton era. Right, and enforces that every state has to recognize marriage licenses that were issued in states where it's legal. Um, And it's funny because kind of throughout this whole process, I have felt very kind of met on the legislation, just almost in part because like we talked about it, this just feels like an issue that has been litigated. To some degree, it just feels like Americans have decided and they are just overwhelmingly fine with gay marriage. So it almost feels like we're going back to a political fight of 10 years ago, even though I guess we do that all the time now. But when it was passed, it really did kind of strike me while I was watching the votes be tallied that this is really kind of the first big response that we've had from Congress directly to the Supreme Court. You know, yeah. this legislation came directly out of Clarence Thomas's concurrence in Dobbs. You know, it the only reason it came about at all is because the increasing sense that rights are not safe in the hands of this court. And that, that struck me in a kind of a newly profound way, just because we've seen really nothing else. You just get the sense that like Republicans have won the court. They've won it for the foreseeable future. And Congress is just a much less potent body, especially with slim majorities. So even when you've got Congress, I mean, what kind of a candle does it hold to the unbridled power of the Supreme Court? And here for the first time, you know, it's not a perfect bill, et cetera, et cetera. But here was a direct response to the court being like, kind of do your worst, but we are, there are protections here. And, and and in defense of the bill, I think that it is, and it's not a matter of I'm defending the bill, but I think that the authors of the bill would say it's not that they're only willing to go so far. What they basically did was that they went to the places where there's no constitutional dispute. Totally. That there is some, it is, if if you made a law that said every state must issue marriage licenses for same-sex couples, I think the 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 belief was the Supreme Court could step in and say, Congress can't do that. You mm-hmm. can't do that. That is a state issue. But on the issue of recipro- rec- wait, reciprocity, <laughs> you can't do that because that's just kind of like, you know, un- unquestioned. So, um, again, that's not the, the, it is a it is a serious shortcoming. But the reason it ended up that way is, I think, more to do with the sort of the constitutional architecture mm-hmm. than feeling like, well, we want to protect, you know, same-sex marriage, but not that much, right? It's, I, yeah, it's, I think that's know. right. I was also kind of alluding to the little religious freedom amendments that got yep. tacked on there to get Republican support, which, you know, in this framework, you can understand. And honestly, none, nothing in the amendment is that nuts. You know, there's just stuff in there that like polygamy can't be recognized by the federal government, which like, okay, 
you know, go nuts or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, and then, of course, by the same token, it does make you think, well, if we didn't have a filibuster, you wouldn't need to tack that stuff on, you know, thank yeah. you, Mansion and Cinema. But all that being said, it's it's a good bill. It's like a pretty critical backstop. I think it will make a lot of people sleep easier knowing that they've got some safety net should the court turn to Obergefell. So, you know, I and, and a lame duck session on top of it. So. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that notwithstanding how bad the filibuster is, in this case, it it puts a a sort of an emphasis on it that this isn't just something that the Democrats could get through on a party line vote. This had, you know, overwhelming support in the Senate. And I suspect that, um, I mean, in the, in the way that these things, just to give people a sense, if the, you know, 30 some, uh, what, 35, 36 Republicans voted against this, if it were the case that those 36 were sort of like, I'm willing to go to the mat and fight to the death over this, you wouldn't have had the other 12 or 11 or whatever it is going ahead with it. So, I, I, you know, they, they need those people need to um, those people need to, you know, stand behind their vote. But at a certain level, it's kind of almost the whole Congress kind of saying, you know what, we're not we're not we're not doing this again. This is, mm-hmm. this is closed. We're, we're done. Um, and that is certainly a, even though it is an imperfect piece of legislation, I think that is a good thing for the country to say to itself, kind of like, we're not, we're not, we're not doing this again. This is done. This is settled. We're not, we're not going back here. And I do, I do, I, I think that, um, I think it will be interesting to see partly because of this, but also because of the outcome of this midterm whether this is going to get the court's attention at some level. Because I think you've got a, there is a pretty good argument. And I don't, I don't just mean an argument that you can make. I, I mean an argument that it is very hard not to make, that the reason the Democrats still control the Senate and the reason they are very close to controlling the House is because of the Supreme Court and its willingness to say basically, you know what? Who cares what you think about judicial restraint and all that kind of stuff? You know, say hello to my friend six to three <laughs> and we will do anything we want. And I think this is, there There are political rumblings here, kind of like, you know what? There's not, you're not invulnerable. You're not invulnerable. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I guess that is what we have. Let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And uh, that's it. Okay. See you next week. See you next week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 